Hey, welcome back to First Generation, a podcast for the first generation Asian kids navigating adulthood. And in this episode, I'm super excited to speak with Amy Yip, a mental fitness coach, keynote speaker, and author. She's first generation Chinese American, and her work has come full circle. So she works with women of color leaders, primarily AAPI women who come from an immigrant family. So much of her work empowers people to really identify and let go of all the shoulds that we carry with us. You know, the you should do this with your life or you should do that in your career, which could weigh us down and make us feel stuck, especially if it's not truly aligned with what we want. Um, And through her work, she hopes that she can empower people to become the authors of their own life stories. So in the first half of the episode, we talk about her path through corporate America and her own path in really peeling back all these layers of shoulds that she's carried with her and how she gradually made the decision to transition into the work she does today. And in the second half, we talk about her new book, which is Unfinished Business, Breaking Down the Great Wall Between Adult Child and Immigrant Parents. We talk about how as adult children of immigrants, we often carry myths about our families, our parents, and their expectations of us. But what if we actually devoted time to engage in meaningful conversations with them? What myths would we find inaccurate? And what new things would we learn about their history? How might all of this change the connection and relationship that we have with them? So I'm super excited. I just bought a copy and hopefully after this episode, you'd be interested in giving it a read as well. As always, thank you so much for tuning in and I hope you enjoy this one. I would love to, you know, dive deeper into the book that you have um, coming out, Unfinished Business. But first, I think I would love is to kind of know more about you um, and just your experience growing up as a the first generation in your family to have been raised and, and born in the States. So I was the accident child. My parents came to the U.S. in 1978. They had two kids that they had to leave back in Hong Kong. One was a two-year-old, one was a seven-year-old, so that they could come here and establish their roots. And they came with $1,700 U.S. in their pockets. They only knew one person, and Mm. They were trying to make it here so that they could bring my sisters over and, you know, have the American dream life. Then my mom got pregnant with me and she told my dad, hey, (laughs) surprise, I'm pregnant. (laughs) And my dad had said, you know, this one got to be the boy. Third time's the charm. It's going to happen. (laughs) Exactly. Like this one has to be it. We're going to keep it. And it was funny because during my conversations with my parents, my dad told me, you know, even when the doctors told him this is a boy, he still hoped that maybe it was like a mistake. You know, maybe they just didn't see the the penis in the in the pictures. <laughs> he wasn't perfect, you know, because right. that's what happened to his friend. Where mm. it was, it the doctors had said you have a daughter, and then out came a son. So he's like, maybe this one could still be the boy. And right. then I came, and we always joke that he fainted because <laughs> at the so sight of up. no penis <laughs> I'm like oh my gosh another daughter um so but you know growing up i i had very traditional chinese parents they had very mm-hmm. high expectations it, everything from wanting me to be a doctor lawyer engineer you know and must go to an ivy league school in order mm-hmm. to get there to you gotta work hard you can't take a break and just all these expectations on me. And so for much of my life, much of my career, I worked mm-hmm. my, my butt off. I never took a break. I got hospitalized multiple times and I still wow. just did not know how to shut off this hyperachieverness. It was mm-hmm. like my head would know that I wanted to change, but I couldn't. And that led me um, into a lot of success by the traditional standards, right? Like. Mm-hmm promotions, a lot of salary increases, working at companies like Google. And yet I just wasn't happy. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of the trajectory of from probably as early as I can remember, I just climbed the ladder because Mm -hmm. I thought that was what we were supposed to do, like move up the ladder, go to the next thing. And it was all of a sudden 
I woke up one day and I was like, wait, what, what am I doing with my life? Mm -hmm. I resonate so much with that part of what you said. Um, I think just reflecting on your background, right? You've worked so for so many large corporate organizations, Google, like you mentioned, um, Booz Allen, Clorox. And I think the common sort of linkage for, for all of these organizations is that they're giant companies, right? It's reputable. And I think at least reflecting on my own experience, there is a, you know, a sense of prestige that comes with working for these types of companies. And I think even if you're not a doctor or a lawyer, um, you've sort of achieved these like external markers of success for yourself. It's interesting to hear that you felt as though you were constantly climbing upwards and you kind of reached this point. You're no longer, it sounded like, fully satisfied with where you were. I would love to kind of know more about how you fully realized that because I, I would assume that maybe throughout those 16 years of working for these various companies, maybe the thought would come up a couple of times. Um, so yeah, how did you grapple with that over time? So it came up multiple times, as you said. The very first time that I vividly remember this, I was a brand manager at Clorox on Hidden mm -hmm. Valley Ranch dressing. So most people don't know that Clorox owns Hidden Valley Ranch dressing. Yeah. So I was a brand manager on it and we were launching a new product and it was the Greek yogurt dressing. And I mm. was sitting in a room with my team lawyer asking, what's the minimum amount of Greek yogurt we have to legally put into the Greek yogurt dressing in order to call it Greek yogurt dressing. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it sounds so silly, but we were such a cost savings business, right? And it was, mm -hmm. how do I use marketing to trick the consumer to think that this is healthy, but it's mm -hmm. really not because we're putting in such crappy ingredients and putting minimal amount of Greek yogurt dressing mm. or Greek yogurt into the dressing. And it was that moment that I'm like, Okay, so I spent all these years in business school, climbing the ladder to sit in this room, trying to figure out what the minimum Greek yogurt to put in Greek yogurt dressing, like what has my life come to? And mm -hmm. so it was that moment that I made a decision, like I have no idea what I want to do for the rest of my life, but I know it's not this. Mm -hmm. And started selling my belongings. I started trying to figure out what am I going to do next? And I had this idea of, I'm going to do this eat, pray, love thing and just travel <laughs> the world and, and be like Julia Roberts. And maybe I'll find mm -hmm. the love of my life and, you know, like all this. Right. And I even started taking barista lessons in San Francisco. I was living in San Francisco. So I was like, there's got to be coffee shops along the way. And I could you know, be a <laughs> settle down, work at a right. coffee shop for a while. But, you know, so I had these ideas and the irony is that the day that I found flights to go to Tanzania, I, I found a nonprofit in Tanzania teaching women mm -hmm. business skills. So I was looking at flights and the day that I found flights, a recruiter from Google contacted me and it was through LinkedIn. And he said, you know, we've got this great role. It's on the food team. You'll be mm -hmm. leaving a global team. You get to travel. You get to use marketing to help people live happier, healthier lives. And I, my jaw dropped. I'm like, Did you believe it? No, because I took it. <laughs> I was like, what is, is this fake? And so I clicked the link and then I sent the link over to my friend. And I was like, mm -hmm. what do you think about this? Does this look real to you? Because this just doesn't seem like a real job, right? You, some Somebody actually doing good with marketing to help people live healthier lives through food. Like, I don't, I don't believe it. And my friend was like, wow, it looks like they made this job for you. You need to mm -hmm. apply. You know, and I'm like, but I'm selling my things. And I told my landlord I'm leaving. <laughs> like, you know, I don't really right. have time to interview. And he's like, well, just see where it goes and tell them that, you know, you have a time limit. So that's exactly what I did. Talked to the recruiter. And it was 16 days from the day that I got that email to when I got the offer letter. Because wow. I was with them. I was like, I don't have a place to stay soon. You know, I don't mm -hmm. really have time to wait for this. So if it's going to take a long time, because I had heard Google ten, can take months, if not years, right? So right. like, I can't wait. And it, they loved me and I loved the opportunity, the job. It was just nothing I'd ever heard of. And honestly, I was a little sh sh scared shitless, you know, mm -hmm. like 
leaving everything behind. So it was, I, I feel like I kind of made an excuse for myself, but also that it was a, a dream job. A good opportunity. Yeah. yeah. Amazing opportunity. So I, my going away party ended up being, uh, just kidding. I'm going to stay here party and, and work I, at Google. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. No. And uh, I, I begged my landlord for, for the place back. So he, thank goodness he hadn't rented it out yet. And when I started at Google, I always said five years is the maximum amount of time that I am going to stay here hmm. because I have dreams. I've got to go pursue it. I want to, I, I still want to go do this thing and figure out my life because I don't think Google is the end all be all. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's a good job for now, but there's got to be something else out there. I just don't know what it is yet. So mm-hmm. when I started, that's what I thought. And what I didn't realize is that as a woman in your mid thirties, you have a lot of decisions to make and that I turned mid thirties mm-hmm. during my time at Google and everyone was saying, you should start have baby. You should start having babies. I literally had somebody say to me, your eggs are rotting. Right. <laughs> and I, was, I was just like, okay, thanks. So I, I started, having these shoulds put on me, right? Mm -hmm. My career at Google was also going really well. So everyone was like, you should just stay. What are you like Mm -hmm. crazy? Everyone's trying to get in. I got a husband during that time and husbands put a lot of pressure. Um, Mm -hmm. And not not that my husband put pressure on me, but he started his own business. And so I felt like it was my own pressure on myself that I need to be the responsible one, right? That's what my parents taught me throughout my childhood. So during that time, like just all these shoulds and my husband and I, we knew that we wanted babies. We just weren't ready. So Mm -hmm. we decided to have our embryos frozen. And a year later, we got an email that said the tank lost temperature control. So we can't tell you the viability of the embryos until you plan to use it. And it was over an email Mm -hmm. on a Sunday. I still remember that morning getting that email. And I thought, oh my gosh, like WTF. And that was when I hit the bottom. Uh, You know, we tried doing IVF again, but we only had one embryo the next time that we did it. So that was when I started on my my journey of Mm -hmm. self-discovery. On the outside, everything looked great. I have a great job. I have a wonderful husband you know, loving family and friends, what else could I want? But mm-hmm. on the inside, things just didn't feel right. Mm-hmm. No, but as a, as a Chinese daughter, as a good Chinese girl, you're taught don't air your dirty laundry. Don't talk about things. Right. So I, don't be vulnerable. Exactly. Don't, mm-hmm. you know, like, yeah, like none of that is good. And so on the outside, I just kept smiling, but then on the inside, you know, I wasn't feeling great. And so I started my self-help journey. I started by reading books. I read every book out there, Brene Brown. Classic. Yes, all the, all yes. the, all the classic mm-hmm. self-help books. I'm like absorbing all the information. I didn't get the answer of do I have babies or do I go travel the world? After I tried books, have you ever heard of ayahuasca? I have heard of it, but you're going to have to give me an overview of what that is like. Yeah, so ayahuasca is a medicinal plant. It's mm-hmm. a psychedelic and essentially... It is, it is uh, for healing. So there's a shaman, there's an entire ceremony, you drink it, and you're supposed to have greater clarity, greater, greater renewal, cleansing of your soul. Mm-hmm. So my friends told me about it and she was like, yeah, there's this thing, it's supposed to give you clarity. And so I was like, that's what I need. I need clarity because I don't know what I'm right. doing. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I found a place in Peru, flew down there and had a five-day ayahuasca ceremony. And I will tell you, I got a lot of clarity about life, purpose, being vulnerable. I learned about the value of asking for help. You mm-hmm. know, there's just so much that I learned, but I came back still unclear on the one thing I went there for, which is, do I have babies or do I travel the world? Right. It's so fascinating. I love that you bring up that women in their mid-30s have so many decisions mm-hmm. to make. And I wonder when you took the role at Google... Was that sense of like, I, you know, should start planning to have a family if I want to have kids. Did that already, was that already a thought that you've had and you you just kind of went into Google with that understanding that you're going to plan for it later? Or was it 
this sudden kind of um, did it sort of just hit you mid midway at while working at Google that this is something that you need to make a decision on sooner rather than later? Really great question. I went into Google, I think I was 32 or 33, and Mm. I had not even thought about the notion that my eggs are getting old and that this is going to be an issue, right? Like, did not dawn on me. And it was, I still remember it was, I was having dinner with a girlfriend of mine and she Mm. was getting her eggs frozen because we're, we're the same age. She didn't have any prospects of a significant partner, a spouse, like nothing in, in the works, right? Dating in San Francisco, you know, it's just, it's just mm-hmm. like that. So she was telling me, yeah, Amy, you should think about it because we're getting old. And if we don't happen to find somebody until much later, at least you're freezing your, your eggs in, in time. Right, and like I'm, an insurance plan. Yeah, it's a, it's a backup plan. And I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, and, and Google covers it, right? Why not? Just do it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's a good idea. And that's when I started exploring. But it wasn't just her comment. Her comment. It was during that time, just so many people saying, hey, so when are you going to find a husband? And mm. when are you going to start having kids? And even just all these comments from my parents, but also from friends, people mm-hmm. all around me, you know, people who are married, people who had kids, like trying to ask, do you have prospects? And some, when I told somebody, yeah, but I have these plans to go travel, someone, someone did ask me, well, don't you want a family? And it was mm-hmm. almost said as if it's a one or the other. You can't do both because you're old. And that right. was when it started hitting me. Mm. What's fascinating is that, like, obviously, I think logically we know traveling abroad having a family, they're not mutually exclusive options. But I think what you're bringing up is the reality of the situation as a woman who's maturing, like there are considerations. Well, making one decision will impact whether or not you can make the other decision in that same time frame, right? So it's, um, yeah, it's like, I, I definitely believe in this overall idea of that we shouldn't have these limiting beliefs that are placed um, on ourselves. You can make both decisions. But as a woman, I think there are very tangible um, considerations and it it makes it so much harder for us. Um, So, yeah, I I can totally see how that would lead to, you know, this period of self-reflection where you're asking yourself, like, what are what are truly my top priorities? How do I want to spend the next few years of my life? Um, So, yeah, absolutely makes sense that that all kind of started hitting you at the time. And I will add that. what I came to terms with and what I realized, and this was why I became a coach. So Mm -hmm. after ayahuasca, a friend told me about coaching. And so I ended up getting a coach and seeking Mm -hmm. the help. And it was a coach who helped me to peel back the layers and help me figure out that even if I stay, I'm not in control of whether or not I'm able to have babies. Mm. I got, I had those embryos frozen and that incident happened in the tank. That was not in my control. Right. And I had so many friends who were in their mid thirties trying to have babies and struggling. And I actually mm-hmm. had a couple of friends who recently got married, got not got married, but just recently had their babies or got pregnant and they've been working on IVF and, and these these fertility treatments for five years straight, right? Wow. It was nonstop. And so what I came to terms with when I worked with my coach was that even if I stayed, I'm not in control. Mm. I, as much as we want to think, oh, I'm going to freeze my eggs and everything will be good and I'll be able to miraculously just like have babies just like that. I mean, it's, it's not that it's hard, but it's also not guaranteed, mm. right? And so when... I just, I realized that I also realized that my dream to go travel the world is something that matters to me a lot to go mm. travel, to volunteer, and I will regret it if I don't do it. Right. And if I say I'm not in control. And that's when I made that decision that I am going to go pursue my dream. Mm. I'm not going to stay, you know, buy a house with a white picket fence and start a family and do the thing that everybody else is telling me because that's not what matters most to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that, but everyone has to make that decision on their own. Right. So I made that decision. And then the other decision that I made 
was that I want to be a coach because what she did for me was so amazing. I, I felt so stuck. Mm. I was miserable, and she gave me this clarity on what it is that I want in my life. And it, it felt scary, but at the same time, I felt so empowered to take that choice. And so right. that was what ended up happening is I went back, got my coaching certification. And then in January of 2020, at my five-year, one-month point at Google, <laughs> I quit my job and my husband and I sold everything and took a one-way flight to Ghana to volunteer uh, mm -hmm. for a, a breast cancer nonprofit. That's such a brave decision. And I've listened to some of your other chats where you've talked about something similar um, in terms of what your what your coach did for you. I think you've mentioned that you really talked about breaking down the shoulds or the should nots um, behind what was kind of going around in your head at the at the time. Um, how do you what do you think was the biggest like should or, or should not that was preventing you from taking that step to say this is what I want to do and this is how you know I want to spend the next few years of my life what was maybe the the biggest should or should not um that you had in your head I think I think there were two mm -hmm. I don't know which one is bigger one was definitely the baby piece because right. that is just not something that you can stop you cannot st stop that ticking time right mm -hmm. And so in my head, I was calculating, okay, if I go and I go for a year and then I come back, you know, at what age and, and like how much time will, right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be a mom at age 40. And that just sounds so old. <laughs> uh, so that was one thing. And then the other should was you should not be leaving the stability and security mm. of a job, especially something like Google. Right. Mm -hmm. You should just stay, wait until retirement and, and where, where you're safe and you're older. Um, and so that was very, very scary because that goes against everything that I've learned and everything that I've worked for my whole entire life. Mm -hmm. I love that you're sharing that because I think for, I think it for a lot of listeners, I mean, we all have things we're grappling with, right? Decisions that we're maybe we're putting off, um, because I think deep down we know that once we do confront these feelings, it's probably going to open up some change that will fundamentally, you know, just redirect maybe the course of our lives in the next few years. Um, at least personally for myself, reflecting on my own experience, it has been like I try to suppress it as much as I can. And I don't actively know that I'm suppressing it until, you know, the same thought is resurging several times. And then I'm like, OK, maybe maybe there's something here. Um, and I know before you've mentioned like panic attacks, I've uh, thankfully only experienced it once, but that for me was my sort of realization that I think these thoughts are trying to tell me something. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think um, to your point, these shoulds, like having the clarity enough to know exactly what these shoulds are is already a big step. And then to be able to overcome that and say, you know, I'm going to push these all aside and still pursue what's most important to me is such a brave decision. But um, I think as your journey shows, it's never really like, um, like it, it took a while for you to kind of peel that, that back and make that decision. Um, oh, yeah. So hopefully, you know, as other folks grapple with, you know, some of the decisions they make, it's, it feels like it's never too late. Um, you have the same reoccurring thought just probably like taking stock of it and then eventually looking into it you'll most likely make the right decision for yourself yeah yeah and and i work with clients anywhere from age 25 mm. to 65 right it is never too early it is never too late to make that decision of i'm not happy where i am and i want to make a change mm not clear that's okay too right give yourself that space to allow it to come forth sometimes we don't see what we don't see and sometimes mm -hmm. it's like you said we suppress it and we don't allow it to be seen and so right. it's giving yourself permission and also giving yourself permission to feel scared even to the day when i walked out of the google office and mm -hmm. i turned in my badge i walked out and i thought 
shit, what the hell am I doing? Honestly, the thought of maybe I could run in and be like, just kidding. I'm like, don't take it away. Right. The moment when my husband and I packed the last of the things from our apartment, you know, or dumped out the last things and just mm-hmm. had our backpacks, I was like, hmm, maybe we should go back and go get our <laughs> things. What are we doing here? Right. Um, so it's okay to feel scared. That's just normal. Hmm. So following that, you mm-hmm. went abroad. Um, and then you were, how long were you abroad for? We were overseas until August of 2021. So wow. it was a little more than a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And the majority of it, so when we first took off in January of 2020, if you remember that thing that came along in 2020 called COVID. <laughs> oh, that? That yeah, thing? That little thing that, you know, most people haven't heard about it. So mm-hmm. we... We were in Ghana when it happened, and our original plan was we're going to be in Ghana for maybe three months, maybe four months volunteering, and then we're going to do our travel. That turned out to be almost seven months of being stuck in Ghana because when COVID came, they shut off borders. You couldn't enter. You couldn't leave. Mm -hmm. And so we we, we ended up stuck in Ghana, but I will say that it was one of the best gifts ever. Because when I was working at Google, I was constantly on an airplane. Mm. I was on every other week traveling somewhere. And I had always said, like, I just want to be in a place for a quiet place where Mm -hmm. I don't get on an airplane. I don't have to travel. I can read. I can sleep. I can meditate, you know, do whatever I want. And that's exactly what I got. Um, and and the U.S. was kind of chaotic at the time, so it was a good thing that I was stuck in this small little place. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were stuck there for seven months, and when borders reopened, we decided that we would just live and work nomadically. So I could do mm-hmm. my coaching from anywhere. It's all virtual. So we started traveling to places that would allow Americans in, which was very small list of countries. <laughs> right. Did not allow Americans in. And so we were living in places like Serbia and Montenegro and Croatia, mm-hmm. um, and then Portugal, Italy. And the funny part of the funny, ironic part of it is that mm-hmm. while we were there, uh, we the year we were turning 40, we both looked at each other, my husband and I, and we're like, you know, we're kind of hitting that <laughs> old age <laughs> point. We should probably mm-hmm. start trying to have babies. Everyone we know, it's been taking them months or years. So, you know, maybe we give it, you know, six, 10 months. And if we can't get pregnant naturally, then let's go home and see if those embryos are viable. And then mm-hmm. if not, then we'll have to figure out plan B. Two months into trying, I got pregnant. Wow. So, yeah. And and I, I was very, very shocked. I didn't believe it. Yeah. Two months in. And, and, and that's and- when you decided to go back to the States? We decided to travel for another three more months. Mm-hmm. We're like, how much more could we travel? You're before? like, I want to milk this before I have to return and do the thing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we also have to figure out where are we going to live? We mm-hmm. had sold everything. So not only do we need to buy all the baby things, we would need to find a home, find furniture. Mm-hmm. My husband needed to find a job, you know, like there are all these things. So we're like, what's the maximum amount of time we could travel mm-hmm. and be somewhat okay going home to do all this stuff before the baby comes. So we, <laughs> we ended up traveling for another three and a half months before coming back to the U.S. Congrats, by the way. I know you have a very cute baby at home. Um, it's it's sort of it's funny that you know the considerations that you were running through in your head about whether or not you should travel abroad or having or have you know stay here and have a child it all sort of worked out and um it's it's funny because when you were looking forward it was so hard you were trying to game like the time and to make sure you can do all of the things and within a certain period of time yeah i i would love um to kind of check back and see um all the changes in your life and how your family grow in the future that's that's amazing to hear um so switching gears a bit i'd love to now figure out 
what led you to writing your book. Um, I imagine a lot of what we just talked about has led into um, you wanting to, you know, put pen to paper um, to document all of this. Um, so your book is Unfinished Business, Breaking Down the Great Wall Between Adult Child and Immigrant Parents, which can I just say is such a great name. Like immediately reading this, I knew exactly who the audience was, aka me and probably everyone who listens to this podcast. Um, so I'm super excited to get my hands on it. Um, but first, I'd love to for you to share about what this book means to you um, and what sort of prompted you to write it. I'll start with the latter. What prompted me to write it? I was work. I, I work with a lot of Asian women mm. and probably around three years ago, I was working with a woman who was 55 year old senior vice president at one of the largest banks, right? By, by Chinese, she was Chinese American. And so by mm-hmm. Chinese parent standards, that's pretty successful. Oh yeah, totally. And, but she came to me because she had this question of what do I want to do with the rest of my life? Cause it is not this. Mm. So that's what we were working on. And she came to this realization. She loves creative work. She wanted to start her own business and do creative work. And then as we were talking, she said, well, Amy, I will have to wait to do this when my dad passes away. And her dad's 85 at this time. When I asked her, well, what makes you believe that? She said, well, he's just not going to get it. He's dreamed that I will become the president. Like that's my next ladder. Mm. And so I have to do that. And if I tell him that I'm going to leave now, I'm going to start my own business. He's going to be upset. He's going to criticize, you know, I just can't do that. Mm -hmm. When I posed this question of whether or not she could have conversations with him about it, she's like, no, I, I absolutely cannot. And what she had said was she goes into what she calls little girl mode when she thinks about the possibility of disappointing him, losing his respect, you know, all of those things are making him not proud. I started seeing the same pattern among a lot of my Asian clients where they go into little girl, little boy mode, really afraid of disappointing their parents, of losing their parents' pride, right? And Mm -hmm. yet none of them were willing to have conversations with their own parents. I started to become curious of, well, what are the stories that I have about my parents? And mind Mm -hmm. you, at this point, I had done so much self-work. I'm like, I'm good. I don't have anything else to work (laughs) on, you know? And I sat and I started thinking and writing. I call them myths, M-Y-T-H, myths, because they're stories. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what are the myths that I have about my, my parents and their expectations or what I think they think about me? And I started realizing, oh, I still have a lot of them. Everything mm-hmm. from they're disappointed in me because I wasn't a doctor, lawyer, engineer, to I married a white guy, so they're they're upset about that because you know they always wanted me to marry a good Chinese boy, to... Mm-hmm. I'm still a disappointment because I should have been a boy and I'm a girl, right? Like just Mm -hmm. all these stories that I had. And this was during COVID time too. And my parents' health wasn't very good. And so I started just realizing that I don't want to miss out on this opportunity to really hear the truth of these stories from their perspective. So I, I called up my dad and I was like, Hey, can I ask you some questions about your life? And just, you know, I wanted to get to know about their mm-hmm. life and their story and their experiences. And my dad said, oh, we've got nothing interesting to tell you. We were just restaurant workers. You should call your uncle. He's he's the lawyer. And he, <laughs> I'm sure he's got lots to tell you. And that just goes to show how yeah. they how, you know, your job title in terms of how much you have to offer. And I was like, I don't want to listen to uncle stories. I want to learn about you. That was the the start of the journey. And so, I mean, was he taken aback when you asked the question? I'm just trying to imagine me doing this to my parents. And first of all, I think my mom would react in the exact same way that your dad did, which is, you know, I mean, I'm just a seamstress. What do you want to know, you know? Um, And truthfully looking, as I was reading your book summary, I was just realizing that, yes, while I have a good relationship with my mom, I don't really ask about much (laughs) you know we talk about day-to-day things but not necessarily um like her stories her history um 
so yeah, I mean, what was your dad's reaction? Was he taken aback and, you know, was a little shy talking about things and you just have to, to pull teeth a little bit in the beginning? <laughs> yeah. Yes, my, my dad was definitely taken aback. He, mm-hmm. both, both my mom and my dad, they were surprised that I was interested at all, mm-hmm. but they also were hesitant to share. They definitely were not as open at first. And so one of the things that I tell people is you need to warm your parents up. Depending Mm -hmm. on where your relationship is with your parents, maybe you do ask them, will you be willing to have these conversations with me? And then you can start asking them questions, but always ask questions that are lighter, right? Ask questions like, what was your favorite activity as a kid? Or what was your favorite thing to eat when you were a child? You know, favorite thing that your mom made for you? Or did you have a best friend in school? Can you tell me about your best friend? So it's these mm-hmm. questions before you go into things like, what was your greatest regret in life? Right. Which my <laughs> talk about, but if I had jumped into that, they'd be like, uh, no, we're not going there, right? And right. so it's all about warming up your parents. So if your parents would be receptive, then yeah, go ahead and ask them. If you know that your parents would say, no, I'm not, I don't have anything to tell you. I don't want to tell you. Then mm-hmm. don't even ask them. You could insert questions like, oh, I ate this thing today and it was my favorite thing. I remember when I was a kid, mm-hmm. when you were a kid, what did you like to eat? Mm-hmm. And you throw it in there. So it's not really asking for permission to ask. You just kind of right. insert questions throughout. And it took a long time to get my parents warmed up. Mm-hmm. So, you know, expect that you're going to be investing hours and hours and hours before you're going to hear anything exciting, but mm-hmm. it's worth it in the end. What do you think um, were some of the, so what you mentioned earlier, right? Um, the myths that we tell ourselves about our parents or about our relationship with them or about our family in general. Um what were some stories that you've long held? Um, I know you mentioned a few, but maybe one like pivotal myth that you've always carried around. And you mentioned, you know, you did a lot of self-work, right? So myths that you still carried around despite all the self-work that you did that you felt, you know, sort of changed um, once you dove into having these deeper conversations with your family. I think the the biggest one is I don't belong anywhere. Hmm. And growing up, there was always the sense of I don't really belong in America because people look at me and they don't think I'm American. You know, the, the typical hmm. question, of where are you really from? Mm-hmm. And then when I go back to China or I go to Hong Kong, people look at me and they're like, oh, you have freckles. You're not really Chinese. You're, you're mm-hmm. kind of you're definitely American. And so it's like the sense of not belonging and growing up my parents always wanted me to be proud to be Chinese. They sent me to Chinese school. They would teach me mm-hmm. about the culture. They would want me to learn learn the language. And I always thought that my parents believed that they're Chinese. They're not really American. They're Chinese, right? So I mm-hmm. always thought that. And I thought they wanted me to think I'm Chinese, not American. Right. So when I talked to my parents about it, my dad said, the moment I stepped on American soil in 1978, I became American. And he's like, nobody can tell me I don't belong here. I belong Mm -hmm. in America as much as anybody else. You know, the only true Americans that, that really are from here are native Americans. So nobody has a right to tell me that I don't belong here. Mm -hmm. And he's the same with you. It's the same with all future generations. Like you have to decide, do I belong here? And then do what you need to do to feel that sense of belonging. But, Mm. you know, and it was really interesting because he said even even in countries where in in like China, where everybody is Chinese, there's still this tiered system of, well, Mm. some people are the in and some people are the out. Right. And people are always going to try to make you feel like you don't belong because of something. Mm. And so it's not new in America that people will try to make you feel like you don't belong. Wow, I find that is so comforting to hear because as you were saying all of this, reflecting on sort of maybe some of my myths, I sometimes would see my mom as someone that I would have to protect. 
Um, I think that's a myth I carry around. I'm the eldest child. Um, and I've always felt a sense of like, oh, I have to protect them um, because my mom doesn't really speak. She has broken English. And, you know, you sort of like want to make sure that they're not treated a certain way. Um, but kind of hearing what your dad just said, I wonder if my mom doesn't see herself in that light at all. Um, she doesn't feel the need to feel, you know, to be protected or she doesn't feel any shame for, for speaking broken English. So I, I, yeah, I wonder whether, like, if I were to ask her about these, these things, whether or not she would say something similar to what your dad said, you know, that you have to create belonging and there's no one else who can tell you that you don't belong as long as you believe it yourself. Yeah, that's fascinating. I sometimes think to myself as I was reading your your summary before, like I feel like I've um, come to terms with a lot of things that I carried around as a kid. You know, mm -hmm. just like the, I, I think, very common Asian American experiences of feeling like an outsider, et cetera. But without actually speaking to my parents, I might really truly be harboring a lot of myths that, you know, aren't really true. Yeah. And, and that, that's why I really wanted to go on this journey is because mm -hmm. I thought I had healed. I thought I was over it. And yet mm -hmm. there was still a part of me, even though I left to go travel the world, even though I became an entrepreneur and became a coach and left this prestigious Google, right? Mm -hmm. And I thought I disappointed my parents. Deep down, there was still this desire for my parents' love, for their acceptance, for them to just say, oh, we're proud of you. Mm -hmm. And there are still stories in my head that they weren't. Do you think after having these conversations with your parents that that sort of changed? And as a, re a potential reader of your book, like how would I, what do you think I would have to gain from, um, you know, speaking with, with my parents? With me, it is, I definitely have the clarity and the, I, I do feel like I've healed tremendously. Mm -hmm. I point blank at one of the questions that I asked my dad was, are you proud of me? And what about me are you proud of? Mm -hmm. And then I asked the same questions about my sisters. And so he was able to tell me exactly how he feels and, and what he's proud of. And I was like, why couldn't you tell this to me throughout my childhood <laughs> growing up? And he said, he said, well, you know, if I had told you that, then you wouldn't have been motivated, right? Like that's just their belief. Mm -hmm. And why they did it, it's not because they're trying to have ill will or, you know, mess you up. It's because it's honestly what they thought. Mm -hmm. And so my parents and I, we have a completely different relationship now. My mm -hmm. dad understands what I'm doing, why I'm doing it. He's so proud of the stuff that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And you know, an example is I'm, I'm a speaker too. So I speak at mm -hmm. events, conferences, at corporate events, and he was taking me to the airport mm -hmm. at six in the morning. He dropped me off and I said, daddy, go home, go get some rest. You must be so tired. And he looked at me and had so much pride in his eyes. And he was like, Amy, watching you go do your thing gives me energy. Mm. I'm not tired at all. And I was like, oh, right. Like that's so sweet. Two, two, three years ago, he used to say, who would pay you to speak? I would pay you to <laughs> Right. And that so is it, a quintessential Asian parent thing to say. Oh my God. And it's like slightly offensive as they're saying it. You're like, why would you say something like that? <laughs> but you know, it's, it's just completely different now. Mm. He's so excited about my book. He even said to me, they should make a movie of this book. You know, <laughs> it's, just, it's really, really weird, but um, it's like, there's, there's no hiding suppose anymore like we're just we're very very honest we're very open we're very affectionate with each other I understand them they understand mm -hmm. me so it's like changed tremendously and for the reader it is healing for you as the reader it is healing for our parents and I think about my parents their mm -hmm. journey suffering how much trauma they went through and I think that by me gifting listening and that safe space for mm -hmm. them to tell their story and have someone listen, it's healed them in many ways. I think culturally, like we don't 
we don't air our dirty laundry. And so I can imagine they've probably spent not a ton of time in their adult life explaining their emotions, like their yeah. inner deepest thoughts. Yeah. And to have someone who's important to them, like their their own children, take the time to really probe and ask and listen probably does mean a lot to them. Yeah. yeah. There's, it's, it's very, very healing. I mean, it's, it's the art of listening, right? Mm. And I, and that's part of what I tell people too, is go into these conversations with no intention, but to listen to their stories. Mm. So not to try to change them, not to try to change their beliefs, their actions. It is also not about having your parents try to understand you. Mm. It is not about you at all. It is about them. And it is about giving them the space and listening to their journey and listening to their stories. Mm -hmm. And by me giving them that, they ended up wanting to know about me and understand me, right? But that was not my intention to begin with. And Mm -hmm. so now coming out on the other end, my dad swims every day. He's, I couldn't even get him to walk and now he's swimming and he actually get him a swimming pass for an indoor swimming pool because we're heading into fall season and winter and it's mm-hmm. going to be cold. And I was like, oh, you want me to pay money for an indoor membership? <laughs> and you're going to go through the inconvenience to go swimming inside? And he's like, yeah, I got to keep in shape. And I'm like, okay, sure. And my mom, who she went to, she was taken out of school in fourth grade, basically didn't have a childhood. Mm-hmm. She's much pretty much growing up, I just never saw her joke around, be silly, have, you know, be like a kid and be playful. Mm-hmm. And now she actually once in a while will crack a joke or smile and be humorous, you know, be a little silly and be playful. And so mm-hmm. something happened where, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I think it's because they feel they've released something where they've healed. And so imagine being able to gift that to our parents who have had such a tough life for most of their life. Mm. I find that to be, that was just not how I interpreted, I guess, this idea of talking to our parents. You're right. Like, I think I was going in with the mentality of like, what can I gain from this conversation? What can I learn from them? Which is, it's, it's still like, it's good to like be curious about your parents. But I love that an unintended consequence of all of this is that all the ways that you potentially hoped for your parents changing just by having conversations and listening that that would prompt that in them and so do you dive deeper into some of the conversations that you had with your parents in your book the way the book is structured is each chapter is basically one of my myths so there's eight mm-hmm. of them and the first part of the chapter is my story and mm. all the beliefs and things from when I was childhood to now related to that myth. And then mm. it's the conversation that I had with my parents. So oh, the, I love that. their story. And then the third part of each chapter is something called a date with your parents. Mm. And it is essentially a, you could call it a guidebook, a worksheet, whatever you want to call it. But it is for the reader to go on mm-hmm. a date with their own parents. And similar to how I write my story, it's my, you know, um, there's personal reflections. And then there are questions for you to ask your own parents. And I bolt, I uh, categorize them into lighter questions, which are the easier mm-hmm. questions, and then the deeper questions. And then afterwards, there's a post-conversation reflection of what are you taking away um, from mm-hmm. those conversations. So every single section, there's stuff that you can do and you could take away to have those conversations with your parents. I'm so excited to to get my hands on one and to try it out for myself. I'm excited for you. I'm excited for <laughs> you. Uh, I've, I've, um, I've had a couple of people mm-hmm. pre-read the book and it's amazing the, the shift that people can have. One, one person hasn't talked to his dad in five years mm. and to his dad and his dad said yeah let's have conversations I'm super excited to to kind of start my own journey of that I actually was curious if you knew I um came across a card set it's kind of like a game um that was I forgot the name of the the game but it was essentially prompts to ask your immigrant parents 
it's fascinating because ever since I wrote the book, a lot mm-hmm. of people are coming to me and saying, oh, you, have you read this card deck? So it's called <laughs> um, Parents or Humans. Yes, exactly yeah. that. Yeah. Um, I now I'm excited to see just so many content, so much more content now, um, more so than ever before of like, just talking about not just the immigrant experience, but essentially as adult children of immigrants coming up in America um, or in a different country, right, wherever their parents immigrated to, like having all of these resources to be able to tap into to figure out how can we like this cannot be it. This relationship with my parents or with my family at a distance where we touch certain things and we don't touch other topics, there must be a better way to handle this relationship. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy for for you putting this out there. Um, yeah. So where could uh, myself and other listeners get their hands on on your book? So it is available at all uh, retail outlets. So it's mm-hmm. on Amazon, Books a Million, Bookshop.org, um, uh, Barnes and Noble, and it releases on September 28th. Are your parents super proud that you're putting all of this out there? Like, were they afraid of their stories coming to, to life in the form of a book and being documented? Yeah, my, I mean, my dad had told me, don't use my name in the book. <laughs> <laughs> Throughout the book, it just says Mama Yip and Papa Yip. I'm like, okay, mm. yeah, no, you're my parents. You know? <laughs> um, it, but we... I surprised my parents by putting photos of them throughout the book. So there's photos oh. of my mom holding me when she after she gave birth. There's a picture of my parents on their wedding day, one of their first uh, dates that they went on. I have a photo of that. And so I, I scattered photos of them throughout the book, but I didn't tell them. Mm-hmm. And my publisher sent me a, a copy of the book early and I had them open it and I filmed them. They were just so elated at seeing them. Oh my gosh, you got our photo. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. I love that. Awesome. Thank you so much, Amy, for joining. So yeah, get your hands on Amy's book on September 28th. Thank you so much for tuning in and hopefully I'll see you in the next one. Bye.